Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, and Happy New Year to our, our listeners. Uh, I think we should begin by, by thanking all those those listeners who, who reached out after our 250th episode, who said they've actually listened to all 250 episodes, which is remarkable. Thank you. And for those of you who haven't listened to 250 episodes, you're, you're, thank you all as, as well. But yeah, uh, Thank you to all listeners. Yes, but we, we had some email, very kind emails. from I got some from Gabby and from Betsy and, and from a few other people. We have Bob from California and John from County Mayo in Ireland. Um I will say that other listeners who I suspect didn't quite make it to 250 but are very dedicated to us are uh, Simon from London, Indian, yes. Joe from London, Mimi from Edinburgh yeah. so sort of said, oh my God, of course I haven't listened to all 250, <laughs> but she's listened to many of yeah. them. So uh, yeah, thank you to all of our listeners. My, my daughter Thessaly is the only family member who listens, uh, hasn't listened to the 250th yet, but she listens to most of them. So when she listens to the Thessaly, this is for you. My, um, my, my, my daughter uh, tells me, David, that she downloads them so we get credit but doesn't listen, listen to them. So she's probably she heard you, you talk enough that, that she doesn't need <laughs> any, any additional uh, audio recordings. So, David, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to interview you. If All that's right. okay. Sounds good. Uh, w- the Civil War has been in the news a lot lately. Civil War is always in the news a well, lot. Well, in fact, that's what I want to interview you about. But but there have been two instances or three, I guess, that have cropped up since our last episode. Um, there, there have been the uh, 14th Amendment decisions about whether President Trump can appear on the ballot uh, the, the primary ballots in Colorado and Maine. Yep. Uh, we've had decisions there, and those are making their way through the courts. We briefly talked about that months ago. Uh, about two seconds, and you yeah. dismissed it. And I did dismiss it. So I want to return to the 14th Amendment question. Uh, but also, we had an instance, which uh, many of our listeners might be aware of, of uh, candidate presidential candidate Nikki Haley being asked about the causes of the Civil War. Uh, during an appearance in Berlin, New Hampshire. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, oh, I did. Right. Yes, I did. Okay. And, and she, frankly, fumbled with that question. And this has prompted me, I've been thinking a lot over the holidays about this, why is the Civil War always in mm. the news? Uh, and I want to, since you're the expert on the Civil War, I want to I I ask you some questions about that, if that's okay. Sure. And we can unpack those two incidents, which yeah. I think are uh, might be significant. Well, but I mean, the, I think the Civil War is in the news every week. I mean, when, right, I, when yes. I taught the Civil War, you know, here and in other places, I, you know, I tell my students, there'll be a Civil War news story every week. And, and, you know, I bring it into class. Like, there'll be a monuments taken down or a politician saying something stupid about Robert E. Lee or, or what have you. So, so it's... You know, part of the political discourse in a way that's kind of weird. Well, yeah, and that's what I want to unpack. And certainly, I think when I reflect on our 250 episodes over the course of the life of this podcast, there's certainly been a civil war story. I mean, I've I've joked with you in previous episodes about how you're always in the news. The revolution, my period, occasionally comes up, but not in the same way, which is slightly strange because you'd think it would, like the Civil War, but it doesn't. Doesn't. And I have a theory about that, in fact. Um, So, so... Let me pause it. I said I was going to interview you, but yeah. now, now be quiet while I talk. Um, <laughs> so, so my theory about this is, of course, the revolution is the founding moment for the United States. Um, and on one hand, that's uh, uncontestable, right? I mean, everyone agrees mm-hmm. it's the founding moment. Uh, however, I think, uh, I don't think the revolution has the same resonance in contemporary discourse because it's not necessarily contested and mm. I, I haven't fully thought this out and i we can p- perhaps reverse the tables for another episode and you can interview me uh, uh, especially mm. at the semi-quincentennial sure. in the offing but my theory about this is i think the political left um especially in recent years especially since the 1619 mm. project for example came was published a few years ago has more or less given up on the revolution and no longer contests the legacy of the revolution in the way it once did. And so I think the revolution has largely been seated in, as, as, an, uh, as a term of political discourse to the right. So we saw a lot, we see a lot of revolutionary iconography, the Gadsden flags, the three percenters, all this kind of stuff used by the political right in the United States and the far right in mm. a lot of cases. We saw a lot, we the people rhetoric um, at the during January 6th. 
But I don't think the left is necessarily contesting that. I think they've kind of seeded that ground. I'm, and I, I, I'm, let's not make this yeah. the theme of the episode. You're giving me a quizzical yeah. look. My argument, my thesis here with reference to the Civil War is I think the Civil War, and um, we're not talking only about the war, we're talking about the Civil War era, era yeah. and Reconstruction, etc., is still contested. Yeah. And still being contested by left and right. And therefore, it has a resonance and, and it, it's subject to political debate and it's invoked in political discourse yeah. in ways that other periods in American history are not. Well, including the revolution. Yeah, but, How, what do you think of that as the Well, argument? I mean, I think one of the things that, that happens during the Civil War is, you know, the Constitution basically gets rewritten. Right. You know, effectively. And and that the, you know, the questions that were relevant in the revolution, for the most part, ceased to be relevant in the 150 years since the Civil War in the same way. Whereas, Civil War is meant to have settled those. Well, but, right? but those the questions that, that were at, di- at, at dispute in the Civil War... Um, you know, are still very relevant questions. You know, and the questions that are relevant in, you know, the the constitutional amendments from the the, the uh, Civil War era, the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth. You know, those are still the things people fight over, right? The things that the Supreme Court fights over with voting rights stuff that 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 Republican politicians want to get rid of birthright citizenship, right? The question of who's a citizen, what are the rights of citizens, how, what does equal protection mean? You know, at what, you know, these questions, I think, are what are the rights of states vis-a-vis the federal government? Um, all, you know, what fundamentally does it mean to be an American? These are questions that the Civil War really was was wrestling with. Um, in, in um, And those, are, I think, are very relevant questions today. And so much more so than I think a lot of the things that the revolutionary generation spent a lot of time worried about that don't seem as relevant anymore. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think that there's less to fight over in the, in, in the revolutionary generation. Um, although I clearly there are some cultural battles about, obviously, as you know, about Jefferson and, and Washington and slaveholders in the revolution, in the founding generation and how we sort of square those kinds of circles. Um, but even those debates, to some extent, are collateral to the larger debate, debate about, about the Civil, Civil War. War. To be sure. Yeah. So so when, when the statues came down, when there were the... Terrible riots in Charlottesville, and mm. the statues came down, and the, in the uh, you know over over removing statues yeah. there and elsewhere. You know, President Trump, then President Trump, said, "Well, if it's Robert E. Lee today, it'll be Washington and Jefferson, Jefferson tomorrow." So right. even even those debates, to a certain extent, are collateral yeah, to the Civil War discussion. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Let, I think let, it let, speaks that my field is more relevant than yours, Frank. Well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, uh, well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> we'll save that for another day. You're cute, Dave. Uh, so, so let, let, let's, during the episode. <laughs> let's begin with let's take these two 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 topics, sure. um, recent topics in turn. So let's start with Nikki Haley and the origins of the Civil War before we talk about its consequences. Yeah, sure. What was going on there and why did she struggle so much with that answer, with that question and answer? So tell okay. me what happened first. Okay, start. so as listeners probably know, Nikki Haley is a Republican candidate for president. She's running against Trump. From she, South Carolina. She's from South Carolina. She is the former governor of South Carolina and she's former. she was the UN ambassador under Trump. But she's one of the... Um, you know, dozens or so people who are running against Trump, uh, but and I think she's like number two right now. Ish, she seems to be number two, two. We'll between see. two and four, somewhere in there, but a very distant um, second place runner. Right. The event was a town hall, one of these town hall events where you get questions from the audience in in Berlin, New Hampshire. Voter asks her what the cause of the Civil War. I think first off that anyone's going to ask that question. It's just a fascinating question because you don't, I don't think you find that in other countries where you don't say, you know, have British politicians saying, what are your thoughts on the corn laws? Right? Like you don't, nobody cares. Like it's not relevant. But this, and she has a very long history with Civil War stuff. And I want to get into that because I think that's relevant for her answer. But here's what she said. She says, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. Then she turns the tables and she says, she asks the person who asked the question, what do you think the cause of the Civil War was? And he says, I'm not running for president. Like, you know, answer the damn question. And then she says, 
I think it comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. And I will always stand by the fact that I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. And she goes on to the sort of rant about freedoms and what freedoms were about. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do these things. Individuals have the liberties so they can have the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do and be anything they want to be without government getting in the way. So she answers the question she wants to answer at the question that was asked. Although, in fairness, uh, not not in fairness, in unfairness, yes. she may have tried to answer the question she wanted to answer, uh, um, but but it was word salad to some extent. Yes. Yeah. No. To be sure. Right. And and, and then the the questioner says he was astonished at her answer uh, and and the fact that she didn't mention slavery anywhere in her answer, and and then she goes on and asks for the the next question, and then she goes on. Um, no, she was quite sarcastic to Yes, him. yes, she was. <laughs> so, and the next day she goes on the radio, on a radio program called The Pulse of New Hampshire, which I'm sure is a, a riveting show, and, and she tries to sort of do cleanup, and she says, of course the Civil War is about slavery, we know that, that's unquestioned, always the case. Which means she probably should have been able to answer it yesterday. Um, we know the Civil War is about slavery, but it was also more than that. It was about the freedom of every individual, which is a very vague and sort of empty statement. It was about the role of government. Again, vague and sort of empty. If we look at Haley, and she obviously was she's from South Carolina, a state which isn't somewhat involved in the Civil War. And, and Well, she premised her cleanup by saying, I'm a Southerner. Southerner right. You know, she kind of laid that out there and saying, of course I know this. So, 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 yeah. so let's, let's, we sort of wind it back. We go back to when she was running for governor in 2010. She has a meeting with the Sons of Confederate Veterans. We have recording of this. Where they ask her, do states have the right to secede from the Union? Well, first, the fact that she's meeting with Sons of Confederate Veterans, which is a ostensibly a, a descendant organization, but has very clear sort of right-wing um, political ideology attached to it. She says, uh, yes, states have the right to secede. So she sort of justifies the Confederate cause, which I think is what they wanted to hear. And they asked her about the Confederate flag. And the Confederate flag at the time was a very divisive issue in South Carolina because it was flying on the grounds of the State House. It had been flying uh, from the State House dome, but a few years earlier they had moved it from the State House dome to another flag on the State House grounds, which but was still very controversial. And she says you know, in this interview with the Sons of Confederate Veterans that she thought the Confederate flag was a symbol of heritage and not of hate, which was a sort of talking point. In, in 2010. Fast forward five years to when she is governor, uh, and there's the horrific shooting of, of nine churchgoers in Charleston. And there are pictures that come out immediately thereafter of Dylan Roof, the, 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 the shooter, um, with Confederate iconography, with the flag, and, and holding a gun, and, and all these kinds of things, and his manifesto, which is a sort of lost cause kind of screed. And a lot of places start to take down the Confederate flag. And Haley is under a lot of pressure as governor to take down the Confederate flag in, in, uh, in, in Columbia, in, in the Capitol building. She does, but she does so very reluctantly. And she goes on afterwards to say that really she wishes she hadn't had to do that. Uh, she writes an editorial in the Washington Post. She writes in her 2019 uh, uh, book that she said, look, Dylan Roof distorted the meaning of the flag. That's what the flag isn't about. Uh, this is what she said in the Washington Post. For many people in our state, the flag stands for traditions that are noble, the traditions of history, of heritage, and of ancestry. The hate-filled murderer who massacred our brothers and sisters in Charleston has a sick and twisted view of the flag. In no way does he reflect the people in our state who respect and in many ways revere it. At the same time, for many others in South Carolina, the flag is a deeply offensive symbol of a brutally oppressive past. So she tries to have it both ways. Um, all of which is to say that, you know, when she was asked, uh, you know, I think it was not a mistake or not an accident that she was asked at, at this town hall about the causes of the Civil War and other candidates weren't asked about, you know, that this isn't as relevant for them is because she has been a very consistently not necessarily a lost causer, but somebody who was trying very hard to sort of play both sides of that issue. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, trying to, as a uh, minority woman as a, in South Carolina, I think she had to, and a Republican, 
you know, she had to have the votes of people who, who are devotees of the Confederate flag on her side, at least in, in 2010, in order to, to gain office. That's my sort of reading of it. Okay, let, let me let me um, ask you a couple of follow-ups. And I, I want to push back and play devil's advocate here a little bit. One is, look, she's a South Carolina Republican. Of course, she has to, she's got to see these groups. She's got to speak to this. It's not unlike if you're a Demo- Democrat in Boston or New York, you go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade whether you care about <laughs> Ireland or not, right? Yes. Because it's what you do. So some of this is politics. The other thing is, and I, I want to ask you this as a historian of the Civil mm-hmm. War, but because this is a object or a subject, I should say, of, of constant seemingly never-ending discussion, and you're about to return to the United States yes. and become a professor of Southern history, history yes. a, in a Southern state. Yes. So this is particularly germane to you. Is there any merit to her argument saying, look, for a lot of people in this state, this flag doesn't necessarily represent the things you say it does? You know, we outsiders, and I understand why black Americans in particular find that flag offensive. I'm not Mm. not making the case, but I'm saying give her the benefit of the doubt. And is there merit to that argument of, uh, you know, this is heritage, not hate? For some South Carolinians, particularly white South Mm. Carolinians, this does represent... Ways of the is there any merit to that argument? I want I want you to just take that yeah. argument seriously rather than just simply dismiss it. So the meaning I think of the Confederate flag is not fixed, right? That that the flag means different things in different contexts, um, and it depends on how it's being used and by whom it's being used, right? And so you know when Dylan Roof is using it, it's clearly used sure. for white supremacy. We go over that. When they use it in the Dukes of Hazard, the quality television program from the early nineteen eighties, you know it means something very different. Right it, it, there, it's more of a generic symbol of of rebellion or something. Southernness of some kind. Southernness, a, a kind of. There, there's like weird Confederate iconography all over that show, but as far as I can tell, nobody nobody knows. You know, like the good guys and the bad guys all have Confederate sort of things attached to them. Means nothing um, or everything. Um, I think at that particular moment in time, in in in, in you know 2010. When she sort of defends the, I think he, one can imagine somebody saying that and, and, and sincerely believing that. I think. Once you get to twenty fifteen, though. Once you get to the you know the shooting, I think there's a, there is a there is a turning point there in which it becomes very very hard to 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 say. Um, that the Confederate flag is not a, a fundamentally a hate symbol, uh, and 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 is primarily a, a heritage symbol. Um, so I think there is a real turning point there. Uh, you know, I think there's a turning point. I mean, I've I've saw this on the ground. You know, in the South, in the aftermath of, of 2015, where up to that point you would have found Confederate flags. You know, it was sold at Walmart. It was you know prevalent at state fairs. It was prevalent in NASCAR races. And then really after 2015, there, there's a, a, a inflection point in which the Confederate flag ceases to be, you cease to be able to say that with a straight face and have people believe it. And, you know, I think for Haley, she, she has made these statements over and over again about, about how um, sad she was or, or how reluctant she was to bring the confederate flag down and you know we can think about sort of why the confederate flag stayed up for as long as it did in, in south carolina uh in the state house um but i think the fact that even in you know 2020 i guess 2023 when she said this uh, at the in in the to the voter in new hampshire that's much less it's much harder to give her the benefit of the doubt then. I think, you know, now, first, you know, as a Republican candidate for president, you should be able to say, yes, the Civil War is about slavery, given that the first Republican president said the Civil War was about slavery. Um, uh, You know, in New Hampshire, you know, where the voters are, you know, New Hampshire is a kind of a weird state, but... You know, the, the, there are some voters there who are descendants from of Union veterans, and, and and you should be able to say the Civil War is about slavery. Um, 
That, that shouldn't be a hard question, I don't think. So, so uh, sorry, I've got two follow-ups for you. Uh, forgive me for interrupting. No, no, interrupting. So, so, so the first is, does she not deserve credit for taking it down because it was difficult for her to take it down? It wouldn't have been hard for you to take it down. Yeah, it yes. So in other words, coming from that side of the aisle and coming mm. from, if we take her at her word that she believes in the... Uh, Earlier version mm. of the Confederate flag that you, as you described yeah. a minute ago, heretics not hate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if we take her at her word mm. and recognize that she is kind of uh, well versed in and sympathetic to that culture, mm. the the journey she had to make to take it down, yeah, is a difficult one, and therefore she we should give her credit for that because there's there's a slight sort of well, it was too little, too late. Yeah. Tone in your in your remarks. I don't want to be unfair to you. No, but no, I think, well, that's, I think that, that's that, that's I think that's what I said. And and you know, if you look at the sort of the, the English journal discourse, from as far as I understand it, of what her decision was, then she was getting lots of phone calls from Republican leaders saying, "You are harming the party by not doing this." And so I think her decision to take it down was to appease other people in her party who were calling and giving her the you know the. A, a, a real lashing uh, over this uh, rather than her making a moral choice to take it down because she thought it was the right thing to do. Um, so I think she thought it was the politically expedient thing to do, which I think is a different kind of uh, of choice and one that she did somewhat reluctantly. Okay. My follow-up is, why was it so hard for her to answer this, this question? question. You know, why is this such a difficult question? You know, so that, that voter, you're right, she claimed he was a, the next day was a Democratic plant and everything else. But why, why you're right, he probably wouldn't have asked Chris Christie that, because no, no one cares what Chris Christie thinks, thinks about the origins of the Civil War. Um, but, but, but why... Why was that a trap? It shouldn't have been a trap. trap. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, it should be, that should be an easy question, right? Like... It's a question they ask on the citizenship test, you know, and the answer is slavery, right? And, but what's and the peril for her in that answer? Why, well, she's not a stupid woman. Well, I, no, she's not. She's clearly a, a, an intelligent woman. Uh, and, and, you know, I think as, uh, you know, uh, get, I think it's not been easy for her being a, a woman of color in her, as a Republican in South Carolina to sort of navigate the very complex policy, politics of race in that state, especially as somebody who is not part of that sort of racial binary, binary that South Carolina has been defined by. Uh, and so she's had to sort of position herself on this question repeatedly throughout her life. How does she relate to the questions of race in South Carolina? And how does she relate to this long history of Slavery of the Confederacy of, of segregation. How does how does her story fit into that lineage, uh, that discourse, that history? And um, you know, I think she's try yeah, has tried very hard. You know, I think she's found that the, the political calculus has required her to take these some of these positions. I mean, that's my reading of her motivations. I can't get inside her head, but that's seems to be what she's doing. What do you think she's doing? I, well, I'm not sure. I, I think part of this, and one, one thing that I find interesting about this is given her background as a woman of Indian descent in South Carolina, mm. but in the United States, is, of course, one of the things she's coming up against, undoubtedly, um, is a degree of xenophobia. Mm, to be um, sure. And, and we've seen that in some of the backlash against her from both left and right, in fact. Um and and I think as a result of that, given the state in which she was born and raised and, and established mm. her political career, she's embracing that history. She had two choices, it seems to me. One would have been to said would have been to say, Hey, look, this isn't my history. I can rise above this. Yeah. I am the new South Carolina. I represent the New South, which is a very diverse place, as mm. you know, etc. So it seemed to me that would have been one one path for her. She didn't take that path. Instead, she lent into mm. that history to, I think, and and probably felt compelled to do so to kind of establish her bona fides 
as a South Carolinian. Yeah. Uh, and and having cool. done that, and she obviously probably did that many, many years ago, she's kind of stuck with that path. I think uh, that's And right. has had to. And so, so I think she's under, I think some of this, I don't think this was motivating the questioner in New Hampshire, but I think some of the questions she's had to answer are basically, hey, how American are you really? Or, you know, or mm. how loyal, yeah. how Southern are you, you really? really right? And so she's had to lean into that. And those are questions that other candidates haven't had to answer. No. Um, or, you know, Lindsey Graham isn't asked this, you know. Um, he might be asked about the Confederate flag, but I think everyone probably in South Carolina takes it as given where he stands on that, right? Yeah. Um, as uh, the other probably most prominent South Carolina politician at the moment. So I, I, I do think she's under unique stress, if you will, because of that. And, and her, her background plays into that. So I think that's part of it. I'm still astounded mm. that, because, you know, as a woman who's been on the political stage for a long time now and, uh, and has clearly has had presidential ambitions for a very long time um, and has had to answer tough questions, for example, as American, uh, as the uh, American ambassador to the United Nations, that a relatively straightforward question tripped her up in the way it did. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, uh, you know, the fact that she apparently didn't see it coming uh, surprises me. And, you know, her dismissiveness of the questioner, which didn't work, um, it, it was just very bad as retail politics. And we know retail politics is really important in those early states in Iowa and New Hampshire to have got it so wrong. Because if she just said slavery, it's not a news story. It might, you know, maybe it gets picked up on the, in the MAGA heartland as she's betraying mm. us. But she's not, she doesn't, she's not really going to win those people over anyway. It seems to me, probably, Even, not, no. probably not. So, so, so I'm surprised. I'm surprised that she found it so difficult and made such a mess of it. I'm interested in what it, why it prompted this discussion for us. Is I'm interested in why this question comes up perennially, as you intimated a minute ago. Nobody would ask somebody, you know, running for parliament here about the origins of the Crimean War, which right. is effectively <laughs> the same thing, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> and you could argue the, the Crimean, Crimean War is was, very relevant. Yeah, <laughs> and it involves Britain and France and Russia and everything. It is relevant, but you, you, it just wouldn't be a wouldn't have the same resonance. And so the, the continued resonance of the Civil War uh, just f fascinates me mm. and, and frankly confu confuses me a little bit because it seems to be, seems to me to be used as a shorthand for a bunch of things. Not to be sure. So I think, again, Haley being asked about the Civil War is in part her also being asked about her background mm. in, a, in a kind of, at a deeper level. Yeah. Although, again, I don't think that was yeah. what the question in New Hampshire um, was getting at. For listeners who want to know more, I Check out uh, Kevin Levin's blog. He's written very extensively about about, about Nikki Haley's uh, complicated relationship with the Confederacy. Um, so, so David, moving on to the, and perhaps this is more germane because there are legal consequences, yes. not just political. Well, actually, sorry. Before we move on, do you think there will be political consequences for Haley about this? There's been a lot of a lot of coverage in the last week. Does this hurt her in New Hampshire? Does it hurt her more generally with the in seeking the Republican nomination? Because of course, New Hampshire is not the entire Republican Party. Party. They then sure. move south. Yes. Um, um, I think predicting the the consequences given this particular election year. I would say it's going to go out in the wash because there's so much stuff that's going to happen in the next three months that is so hard to predict given all of the, the various legal challenges that Trump faces, how far Trump is ahead at the moment. I'd say it's probably nothing. Right. Okay. <laughs> that that'd be my guess. I don't think her, her, this is not going to be a thing where this sinks her candidacy. It's not a thing politically, but are we correct or am i correct in saying it's a broader indicator of the the resonance of this topic oh i 100 percent think that's right i think that the fact yes all right let, let's let's move on to the 14th amendment now so we're after the civil war day everyone's favorite we're, amendment <laughs> well i mean i think you're quite right i like the framing you gave at the beginning at the top of the show I think we do end up remaking the united states constitution in the aftermath of the civil war mm. which is one reason why the Civil War is more relevant than the Revolution in the sense that we're dealing with a new constitutional settlement mm. post-1876 or 1877, and, and um, it's at least the second or third American Republic. So I think, I think we're quite right. The 14th Amendment is, is, is one of the kind of foundational moments in the constitutional history of the United States. Um, 
what's going on with the fourth? Can, can, yeah, you, sure. so, but, but can you explain to listeners what's going on, especially our non-U.S. listeners who might right. be a little confused by all this? Okay. Uh, so the Fourteenth Amendment is the the arguably the most important amendment to the Constitution. It's also probably the most complicated. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the longest. Um, it is the longest. Um, so the context here, this this it happens is is one of three constitutional amendments that happens after the Civil War. The, the, the you have the Thirteenth Amendment, which ends slavery. Uh, see the Spielberg Lincoln movie if you want to know more about that, which happened you know is is, is passed uh, right at the beginning of of, of Lincoln's uh, second term or after his his reelection, I should say. Um, what you have in the aftermath of the Civil War is a couple of uh, of really fast uh, interesting things that really spurs the 14th amendment um one is that former southern states confederate state former confederate states uh after the confederacy falls apart they basically conclude that fine we may have lost but we are going to continue to maintain power the power structures the way they they are and in December of 1865, with the approval of President Johnson, they elect representatives to Congress. And these include all kinds of Confederate leaders, including the vice president of the Confederacy, a bunch of Confederate generals, to Congress. And they say, look, we are parts of this country. We lost the war. But here, here, here are our representatives, you know, uh, to, to Congress. Uh, Northern congressmen say, no, we're not seating them. Um and, and part of it this is a question about you know what punishment, if any, are people who engaged in in rebellion against the United States going to face? Uh, at the same time, Congress is getting lots of reports from the South of widespread violence, uh, violence that is targeting uh, freed people, so African Americans, violence that's targeting white Republicans, violence that's targeting the Freedmen's Bureau, which is this government agency that is designed to help. Uh, African Americans in the transition from slavery to freedom, uh, other government agents being harassed and, and targeted with violence, but just like a lot of just an unbelievable amount of violence coming from across the South and in Louisiana and Texas and, and South Carolina, just all over the place. And, and it's in sort of the, the the aftermath of all this that that Congress says, "Look, we need to have a framework for making sense of of." of First, who is a citizen of this country, and what is the status of these states, and what is the status of things like the the debt uh, of uh, both the United States and and the former Confederacy and of Confederate states, and so the Fourteenth Amendment emerges as a compromise in Congress to deal with a lot of questions, uh, and there are five sections, four real substantive bits, and a fifth section that says Congress has the power to enact legislation about this. The first one is the, the one we think about a lot. That's the one that gives equal protection. That's the one uh, that grants citizenship, uh, birthright citizenship, due process, like all the things that we think about with um, creating a, a framework for equality in the United States. All of that comes from that first section of the 14th Amendment. I mean, if we think about where Brown versus Board of Education comes from, if we think about where marriage equality comes from, all of that comes from that first section. Why? How? I, I explain that a little bit. Um, it's, it's so foundational. foundational right. So, so, so one of the things that, that, that Southern states do after, after emancipation is they pass things like black codes that say, look, African-Americans may be free, but they are second-class people. They're not even really citizens. They're just they're they're a different category of things, and in the Fourteenth Amendment it says that that you know the, the the there will be an equal protection of the laws. The laws will apply to all people the same, right? And that you will have due process, and and that there are protections that are afforded to people equally. And so therefore, you know, um, if you're sending African Americans to to inferior schools, that is not equal. And so Fourteenth Amendment kicks in. If you say that. Uh, Gay and lesbian people are not entitled to marriage. You are denying them equal protection of the laws, marriage equality. So there's just a, you know, all of these sort of civil rights that we think about uh, and Americans value that you know, come out in, in the, the 20th century and the 21st century, all that is tied very much to that 14th Amendment, the first clause. 
the, the second bit of, of the 14th Amendment, um, which I'll deal with, they, they're, one of the things that they're debating in Congress is about, about who is going to be a, a well, the other part in the first part is, is, is birthright citizenship. And it says, if you're born in the United States or naturalized in the United States, you are a citizen of the United States, right? Which is you know, a very fundamental premise of, of what citizenship means, contrary to how citizenship had been treated before the Civil War. The second bit, they're trying to deal with, with uh, voting rights and, and trying to figure out there's a debate in Congress. Should we let African-Americans vote or not? And eventually in the 15th Amendment, they say yes, or at least for black men. In the 14th Amendment, they have this weird thing where they're trying to encourage states to give voting rights to black men um, but they do it in a very convoluted way they say look if you don't give voting rights to um, black men we will take away representation in congress proportions the percent percentage of people that you don't allow to vote sort of stuff it doesn't really work and hence you need the, the 15th amendment the fourth section and we'll get to the third section last because that's the one that's relevant here the fourth section has to do with uh, the debt from the war and it says basically the federal debt we're going to pay that is that is that is that is guaranteed the federal debt will be paid and the confederate debt will not be paid and so it says one debt is invalid one debt is entirely valid that actually has consequences for the debt ceiling potentially but we'll leave that aside the third section is again it's pretty convoluted the way it's phrased but it, it's basically it says if you have taken an oath to uphold the constitution as a member of Congress or as uh, somebody who uh, serves in the military or holds any kind of office at the state uh, level, and then you engage in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or give an aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, you cannot then do any of those other things again. So if you are in the army and you engage in rebellion, um, then you are not eligible to be a member of Congress, basically is what it says. And it also says that Congress can remove this disability by a two-thirds vote of each house. If you're trying to make sense of the 14th Amendment, one of the things that, that that's, and I think Foner, Eric Foner's book, The Second Founding, is very helpful on this. One way to make sense of it is it, it was a amendment that was devised in the committee, so it's not, it's in itself as a compromise, and the fact that it's got these four bits, which are sort of, should be actually be separate amendments, but they're not, they're all sort of lumped together. Uh, the reason for that is, is, is to get a legislative majority to vote for it. That enough people would vote for, be interested in voting for some of those things that they would be willing to swallow uh, the bits that they were less satisfied with. Uh, you know, and so on the third, third section, you know, there were some people who said, look, this is too harsh. There are other people who said, this is too lenient, right? Um, like Thaddeus Stevens said, look, this is this is far too lenient. We should really be punishing these guys much more harshly than, than we are. But but we end up with this sort of compromise that says that you can't hold office if you've previously held office and taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and then violated that by engaging in insurrection or rebellion or giving aid or comfort to the same, um, then, you, then you can't hold office anymore. And so that's the framework by which... Um, you know, the, both the, the Secretary of State in Maine and the Colorado Supreme Court have said that Trump has either engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United or against the Constitution, uh, or given aid or comfort to the same. Having previously taken, it, having oath. previously taken, and we've all saw him take the oath. So, right. there's not any question about whether he took the oath? Okay, so question for you because i remember you know for for years before before we hired you david yeah oh, and who knows what'll happen after you're gone <laughs> i taught the civil war and reconstruction because it seemed to me that we ought to this was after our colleague paul quigley left and yes. before you arrived so I, I i did you know i've taught this material before myself not and i don't have the same degree of ex, uh, expertise that you do of course but that third clause was something you sort of said oh yeah that was relevant then but we didn't say, well, I never have to worry about that mm -hmm. again. But if you, you know, 10 years ago, if we were doing this, sure. a podcast on the 14th Amendment. You'd we'd skip over that. Bit. Yeah, we'd skip over in the way you've dealt with the fourth bit. Yeah, we, third and fourth aren't as relevant as the, the, the first two. So, well, yeah, history has a way of surprising us. So, so that's very, that was very time specific and specific to that period when it was adopted. Mm. But it is part of the Constitution, and yeah. the Constitution 
we are told, especially by people who are who are who fetishize original meanings, hmm. um, you know, is is, is eternal, um, and and applies at all times. Um, so so where are we with the contemporary uh, political? So let's deal with the legal and constitutional question yes. before we deal with the political question, because sure. I think those things are not the same. Well, so it has been used since the Civil War. Right. Okay. So so uh, it's been used in 1921 against uh, Victor Berger, who was a socialist who had opposed. Uh, U.S. entry into World War One, and he was denied a uh, seat in Congress because of this. They said, look, you've given aid and comfort to the enemy by opposing U.S. entry into the war, and he was convicted of the Espionage Act, but then his conviction was overturned, and then he was allowed to have a seat in Congress. Um, but it was used then, so it has been used since for other uh, insurrections or rebellions or aid or comfort to the enemies. Um, so it has been used in other contexts. Okay. Is that the only time? Uh, it's been used, I think, actually in the past couple of years for people, uh, the state, on the, sort of the state and local level, for people who actually were part of the January 6th um, mob that, that, that invaded the Capitol. People who were told that you were not eligible to be county commissioner or whatever because you were county commissioner and then you got arrested for, for you know, um, violating the Capitol. Okay, so I don't want to. I want to set aside the politics uh, for a second and talk about again the legal mm. uh, situation and the constitutional implications of mm. this. How strong? And I, 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 neither of us are lawyers, as we've demonstrated repeatedly on yes. this podcast. But to, as as a historian of this of the Fourteenth Amendment, among other things. Um, how strong do you think the case is? Um, the cases are in both Maine and, and, and Colorado. Um, and what are the implications for other states? And thirdly, and I realize I'm, mm. I'm piling on the questions sure. here, this seems to apply at the moment only to the primary ballots, if I'm correct, in both states, not to the presidential, the general presidential mm. election, but are there implications for that? So those are three yeah. questions. Uh, Take them in any order well, you like. Well, so I think, well, I'll do the last one first. It strikes me that in both of these cases, and I think the Colorado Supreme Court makes this pretty clear, they know they're not going to be the final word on this question, that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to make some kind of decision about um, the applicability of this um, clause to, to this particular candidate. Um that's going to be the sort of final word, and that's going to be be a presumably the Supreme Court's going to have to take this up. I mean, I can't imagine them not taking this up, and one can imagine how the Supreme Court's going to rule. But I think you know, if you think about what the situation in other states, and there are a series of of lawsuits and different phases of things in other states uh, on this question. Uh, and I think you know, some states have said, "Look, we're not dealing with this until." The general election, the primaries are, are a weird sort of hybrid kind of election that are partially run by the party, partially run by the state, and this really only applies to the general election. And so um, I think the, the legal road for this is going to be pretty, well, it's going to end up at the Supreme Court, and, and, and they're going to have to make some kind of adjudication on it. Um, you know, the it's intriguing to me that in one of these cases, uh, it was the Secretary of State in Maine, and in one case, it was the State Supreme Court that made this decision. Why does that intrigue you? Well, I mean, it, the job, one of the jobs of, of Secretaries of State at the state level is to um, adjudicate the qualifications of candidates. And it strikes me here that the 14th Amendment is adding a qualification for candidacy in a whole variety of offices. Just like in Article 1 and in Article 2 of the Constitution, there are qualifications for offices. You know, and if somebody files to be a candidate who doesn't meet those qualifications, it's the job of the Secretary of State to say, look, you are not qualified because you don't fit, haven't checked the boxes that are required. And this seems to me they are adding a box here of things you got to check. Um, like being the appropriate age. Or, yeah, yeah. So like if Elon Musk says, I'm going to run for president, you know, and you're the Secretary of State, you're going to say, no, sorry, Mr. Musk, you may be the richest man on the planet, but you were not born in the United States, and therefore, uh, you know, you're not eligible to be president. Sorry, you're not going on the ballot. You know, or, uh, I'm trying to think of, um, Taylor Swift said, you know, look, I want to be president. You would say, I'm sorry, Ms. Swift, you may be the most popular entertainer on the planet, but you're not old enough, and therefore, she's 34. Oh, okay. 
Who? Who is she? I've never heard of her. But uh, maybe she'll be 35 by the time of the, the, the actual inauguration next. So maybe she will be eligible. Um, but, uh, you know, the, these kinds of questions. I think it's an eligibility question. And, it's, you know, uh, what the main secretary of state was that people will file complaints saying, look, this person is not eligible. And, you know, it's their job to make that adjudication um, about eligibility. It seems like, you know, the question then is, did Trump engage in an insurrection or rebellion or give aid or comfort uh, to the enemies of the United States? And I think, you know, that's a little bit of a trickier question than whether or not they're born in the United States or whether they're 35 years old or whether they've lived in a particular state for long enough or what have you. Um, but it's not categorically different. Okay. Um, what, what, what you, you seem to think that, that this is a, a bad... You know, a, well, I, I, I don't dispute anything you've said mm. on the legal side of things. And I'll be very interested to see how the Supreme Court rules on it. Because on one hand, of course, we know that three members of the current conservative majority of the Supreme Court were appointed by Trump. Yeah. We, do all, we also know that Supreme Court, Supreme Court justices have life tenure and they often diverge and can diverge quite... Uh, significantly from the views of the person who appointed them to the mm. court, uh, yeah. and so so, and I know, we know that this court, particularly it's con the conservatives on the court, many of whom have a sort of originalist philosophy, which is you know you go back to the original meaning of the of the text. Mm. Um, I think if you're an originalist, that strengthens the case against Trump. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it does with regard to the Fourteenth Amendment. So I think. I don't think it's as clear-cut as a lot of people... As, basically, we don't know how the court's yeah. going to rule. We, well, we simply don't know. One the, of the Sorry, your question, though, was about the politics. Mm. And I think the politics are very, very complicated. You were, you were going to make a point. Well, which one of the things that some people have pointed out about the, the 14th Amendment is it doesn't... You know, they could have said, if you were supported the Confederacy... Right, or, or, or they're very specific about the, the rebellion of 1861 to 1865. The fact they phrased that people have been pointing out, the fact they phrased in this very general way, insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution, suggests that they were not only interested in, in, in singling out those people who, who betrayed their oath to support the Confederacy, but also to go forward and say, look, in the future, if you do this again, and, you know, it was not in 1868 entirely clear there wasn't going to be a civil war round two. Um, you know, that, that those people would also be disqualified from holding office, that there was going to be some kind of disqualification as a consequence. And so I think, you know, as a forward-looking measure, it's not just designed as a backward-looking measure. I think it is also designed as a forward-looking measure, or at least that's one way of reading it. Right, right, right. No, I think that, I think you're right. No, I think the legal case is interesting and stronger than it seemed to me on first glance. Mm. We had a discussion way back, right after, well, in 2021, right after the January 6th events mm. about what they were, whether they were a coup or a rebellion or a riot or whatever. I think insurrection, we now know, first of all, we know much more about what actually happened on that day. Mm -hmm. We know much more about what was intended in terms of what was planned, etc. I think insurrection is, is a better word than coup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and to some extent, this is a semantic debate. But I think, I think the legal case based on the 14th Amendment is stronger, is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. It, yeah. it, so you asked me my response. Both about the things on January 6th, but also the things that Trump was doing before January right. 6th and after January 6th. That's right. That's right. I mean, there seemed to be a deliberate, you know, uh, effort and campaign to reverse that election result. Um, and, and he hasn't really given given up on that, frankly. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not as though, a la James Longstreet, who we mentioned briefly last week, he sort of said, you know, got that wrong. I mean, I see him return <laughs> to office, but, you know, yeah, maybe we could do things a little differently or yeah, you know, he's totally unrepentant on all this. So, so, so I, I, to the extent that factors in hmm. uh, or should factor in or might factor in, I think that that could be relevant. So in answer to your question to me a moment ago, I think the legal case is, is pretty strong, allowing for the fact that I'm not a lawyer. And, and I think I, I'm not so sure the Supreme Court's 
there's a real the Supreme Court has a real crisis of legitimacy at the moment. Yes, it and is. this case is going to make that worse, regardless of how it rules. I think. Yes, I think that's um, right. So, so I think the Supreme Court is going to really face a, a dilemma here. So I, I don't know how that will play out. As far as the politics go, mm. I think this is in the short term good for Trump. I think it energizes his base. I think it strengthens the argument that the deep state is out to get him, that they're trying to steal by any means, fair or foul, and in mm. this case, especially foul, um, the opportunity to to win re-election mm. or to steal yeah. his certain re-election from him. Um, and, and, and I think, I think it, it definitely feeds that narrative. I think a lot of people, many people, most people mm. will not have a detailed understanding of the 14th amendment, whether they're on the left or the right. But I think particularly Trump supporters will think this is just a technicality. He's very good at obscuring the legal issues. He's, he's facing so many, this just becomes another, <laughs> another one, one of yeah, them, right? Sure. And it's confusing it's you know not well understood, and I think it will play well in the short term. Mm. And so I think politically, I think it may benefit him in the short term. I'm not so sure it benefits him in the general election very much. I also think if he's actually off the ballot in states, mm. that could be really interesting because this could be a very close election in the Electoral College, mm. so every electoral vote will matter. And and so there could be issues yeah. there. So so, uh, and Colorado and, yeah. and and Maine are both traditionally, or at least in the past couple elections, have been blue. But Maine's one of those weird states that divides its electorate. Right. And Trump, I think, in twenty sixteen, got one vote from Maine, uh, and so you know, that one vote could and it could come out of that. Not, I mean, and. Uh, I don't know, and there's precedent back in the 19th century. I mean, back yeah. in 18, the 1860 election of people being on the ballot in some states, but not all states. Well, and, and more recently, I think, you know, like there was one election. Uh, I think in '64, I think Lyndon Johnson wasn't on the ballot in every state. Um, so, 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 what do you think of that? I mean, I, and I think when we first mentioned this, and again, we only mentioned it in passing a month or so. There, a there was, ago. there was, an, yeah, there was an article about like the twelve right, things I think that could happen. That's right, and you were a little bit more bullish about this than me at that point. But what, what do you think of the politics? Not that you've talked about yeah, the side of things. Well, I mean, one of the debates that that they just going back to the nineteenth century, which is maybe more my wheelhouse. One of the debates they have in the nineteenth century, in the in the aftermath of all of this, is. You know what is the right amount of of both punishment disqualification for people who engaged in war against the United States that resulted in three quarters of a million people dying, versus you know what are the steps that you need for reconciliation, right? And how do you um, you know go about healing a country that is deeply divided? You know that was deeply divided. Before the war, obviously during the war, and then you know even in, obviously in the aftermath, remain deeply divided. You know, and, and and they have really intense debates about you know what are the advantages of disqualifying all of these people who 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 violated their oath of office versus you know what's the advantage of trying to serve, try to bring them back into the fold, right? And and so one of the things that happens in eighteen seventy two is Congress. You know, I mentioned that the last line of the third section of the 14th Amendment says the Congress can remove this disability by two-thirds vote. They do this in, 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 in uh, 1872. They pass an amnesty act, which um, cleared most but not all former Confederates uh, who had done this of, of this disability. Uh, they, they have still applied to sort of top people who, uh, you know, the, the more sort of senior class of political leaders, but for that sort of... Uh, everybody below that, they say, fine, you guys are welcome to be back in the club, as it were. And I think that's one of the questions, you know, I think that we're, the United States is going to be wrestling with for the next decade, right, is, is how, the, in this deeply fractured country, how do you deal with consequences of things like the insurrection of January 6th, but also how do you figure out, you know, how to be a functional country again? Because right now the United States is, is, is not doing its best in that regard. Um, and so I think those I think that those debates I think are very still very relevant. Okay, great. But does this help or hurt Trump? 
I, I, well, if he gets taken off the ballot, it's going to hurt him, right? And especially if the Supreme Court says you're not eligible to run, I mean, one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of violence if that happens. I mean, there's going to be a lot of violence. You know, there's already been tons of death threats targeted the, at the main Secretary of State, at members of the Colorado Supreme Court, right? And, and I think the, the likelihood of political violence were Trump to be taken off the ballot and people not being able to vote for somebody they want to vote for, uh, given what we know about Trump supporters in the past, uh, you know, eight years, um, that could be a, a very perilous place for the United States to be in. The next, the next 12 months are going to be crazy. I think we all know that. This is not going to be a normal election. Right, okay. <laughs> but, but, however... Is that a reason not to do it? That is that that is the, the conundrum I think that 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 you know people like the main secretary of state were are wrestling with. Like what are the consequences of taking him off the ballot versus not taking him off the ballot, right? Like if you if you leave him on the ballot, then you're saying are you saying you're saying one of two things if you leave him on the ballot. Either he didn't engage in insurrection, or in which case you're legitimizing the events of January sixth, or you're saying the fourteenth amendment doesn't really matter. And if you start to say that, that's a very slippery slope, right? Because then, because you know, if you if you say, well, the third section, the fourteenth, doesn't matter. Well, maybe the first section doesn't matter either. And 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 if we go down that legal, you know, train of thinking, then then we've got some real problems. Um, and and so I think uh, you know, I don't envy people who have to make this decision at all because it's a it's an awful decision and all the solutions are bad. Um, but I think, you know, uh, if the Constitution means anything and if, you know, we want to pe- hold people accountable for, for engaging in insurrection, I think we need to take them off the ballot. Now, that may be disastrous in terms of what the sort of knock-on consequences of that are, but that seems to be the way things lie for me. But in terms of, okay, oh, sorry, if he's off the ballot, yes. so, so let, let's pretend it's a normal election year. I, <laughs> okay. I realize that's a pretty major caveat. I, I want to talk X's and O's here in terms of mm. like electoral strategy. Does that help him in the way I outlined a few minutes ago in terms of, obviously if he's off the ballot, it doesn't help him in Maine and Colorado. Yes. And perhaps elsewhere. But in terms of his electoral strength elsewhere, because you know, one doesn't expect the all secretaries of state to take yeah. this action, for example. He's going to be on the... You know, barring, really, his death, mm. I think he's going to win the Republican nomination and be on the ballot for the in the general election next November. Is that fair? Well, barring his death, he's going to, be, he's going to win the, the, the nomination. Whether he's on the ballot in November is a different question. Okay, all right. And because there are all a bunch of other legal questions yes. as well. Okay, but but that that being so, how does this debate over the Fourteenth Amendment mm. affect yeah. his electoral prospects? Uh, I I guess it depends on, on whether he gets off the ballot, kicked off the ballot in swing, a swing state. Right, because yeah. it's not going to matter in Maine. Well, it might matter Maine, in Maine because Maine has a split, but 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 it's probably not going to matter in Maine or Colorado. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't happen in Alabama. Alabama. But he's not going to lose Alabama, Alabama anyway. Right. Um, so it. it would depend on... But if he gets kicked off the ballot in Florida, you know, that could be crazy, right? It all takes, you know, given the stupidity of the electoral college system, um, all it takes is if, if this folds out to be in a swing state, pick your favorite, um, you know, then then um, that could have real consequences in terms of, of you know, people... Seeing the, the the legitimacy of the whole election then gets called into question for some people, one way or the other. Would, sure, yeah. Surely the best result, and I, I acknowledge that this is a very <laughs> best result. Okay, I'm curious to see what the best result is. No, no, no. I I think in terms of the country healing and moving ahead, mm. and I'm I'm now going to make a partisan statement, so listeners might want to turn off. Huh? would be for Trump to be on the ballot and lose. To lose, uh, lose and admit that he lost. Well, he may never admit he lost. Yes, but if we're doing doing like Disneyland, you know, kind of scenarios, if he were to lose and say, you know what, I lost. And I lost the last time too. I've come to my senses. Um, 
Good luck, Joe Biden, in term two. Um, but that's not, you know. Well, listeners, we will probably return to this this topic we, again. Well, I, I, well, it certainly got more legs than I thought than I thought a couple months ago. Got, There's no right? doubt about it. And as I've thought about it, I think, and as you've laid it out very helpfully today, David, thank you. I think the legal case against him, the constitutional case, is much stronger. I hadn't mm. given it much thought when we first discussed mm. it. Is strong and pretty compelling. Mm. I'm worried about the politics of it, and I realize that that shouldn't be the issue. But I, I, I think that it, it, it. Politics are very complicated. The politics are very complicated. Yeah, I agree, and and the court's very complicated. Again, I think. It, just as every Secretary of State faces a difficult decision, I think the Supreme Court's decision is not as clear-cut as, as some commentators would have us believe, because I think its decision will be very, very tricky. Yes. So, yes. anyway, we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. This is good, listeners, in case you didn't know, this next year is going to be busy. So, David, yes. just before we wrap up, do you see a time when the Civil War is just not that interesting? I hope not. No, no, no it's always <laughs> going to be interesting. It's always going to be important. Yes. But and important as a historic topic is yeah. fine. What I mean is, wouldn't you like to wake up and not have it in the news? It's, there are times in which, you know, the, the past, it does seem past six or seven years, it really has been so ubiquitous and, and so powerfully relevant, whether it's questions about monuments or citizenship or obviously all this 14 million stuff. It's increasingly interesting to me not only how it's not the war itself that's relevant, it's it's the reconstruction that's relevant. Yeah. Right. It's about figuring out what the war meant. Um that that, that, that these these are the questions that, that have really you know, these yeah, it's the origins and consequences. It's not, not it, it, who won the battle of you know Antietam and how you know what, those kinds of things, you know, are, are less relevant than 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 these bigger questions about about the things that led to the war and things that have emerged from the war. So, you know, it's a fascinating time to be a historian of, of the Civil War because, because people see the relevance of what you're doing. Um, and they want you to comment on things that, about which you are interested but not as, as expert in as the stuff that, that actually happened 150 years ago. So, Right, but but you kind of Nikki Haley'd me. You didn't oh, answer geez. the question. <laughs> um, Those are fighting words, right? <laughs> um, can, can you see a world where it's just it's, it's less immediately relevant uh, or, or it doesn't come up uh, every day or every week? Would you yes. welcome that world? Well, I mean, I think that that would mean the United States has done a lot of healing. And and I think the United States needs to do a lot of healing. Um, but that's going to take some time. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, maybe about the time I retire. Um <laughs> That, that, then things may, may calm down a bit, hopefully sooner. But and, uh, and as somebody who is returning to the United States yes. to go to a public university yes. in a southern state, yes. uh, who's an expert in the Civil War, does this fill you with um, optimism, um, happiness, joy? joy. Uh, I mean, excite- you're going to be relevant. So, excitement? Yes. excitement and dread simultaneously. Right. right? Okay. I think, uh, you know, it's the one of the great things about teaching the Civil War, whether it's here or in the United States or really anywhere, it's not hard to sell students on the relevance of it, right? right? Like in a way that sometimes, you know, some of our colleagues have more of a challenge trying to say, this is relevant to you because I don't have to do that to the same extent because the relevance becomes apparent almost every day. Well, David, and I say this from a place of, of, of love, here's hoping you become irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, for all our sakes. Exactly right, because we really don't need another one of these wars. It, didn't, it, was, it was kind of a disaster, right? All right, time for last drops. I'll, I'll, I'll go first, because uh, I've got one that, that is somewhat Civil War related, and that's about the American Ornithological Society. Yep. Do you know the story? I do. This is about changing names, right? Yes, right. Yes, so, so this is the society in the United States that's in charge of naming birds, uh, and they have had a debate for four or five years now, about what do you do with the names of, of, of birds that are named after unpleasant, racist, white supremacist people. Uh, in particular, they had a fight that started in 2020. They had a, there's a bird that's named after a Confederate general, John McCowan. Not a particularly good Confederate general, but Confederate general. And so they have this fight about, you know, what do we do with these birds that are named after these people? And they made a very interesting decision. And they decided... Uh, 
just a, a couple months ago, that they are going to take all the names off all the birds. And so instead of having to sort of adjudicate the moral basis of each individual bird and ornithologist from the past who has, you know, had a bird named after him, they're just going to take all the names off of, of the birds, which is about 70 to 80 birds, and, and give them names that describe the bird rather than name them after some 18th or 19th century dude who, who discovered the bird, quote-unquote. Uh, which I think is a sort of fascinating way to sort of think about how you deal with the legacy of these things and the fact they're just decided to scrap all of them. It seems like a, just a very elegant, in some ways, uh, solution rather than having to, to adjudicate the... the uh, morals of, of bird watchers from 200 years ago right so you don't have to say silkonats warbler is is okay okay but, but robert e lee's robin well, isn't not exactly right right but of course well yeah i, I mean I, I and i read about this with some interest i i think um i think it's a sensible decision mm. i think it's also helps that birds also have scientific names as sure. well as common names, so so um, and and so so I think that 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 probably helps as well. And of course, they're international. Um, you do wonder what the Audubon Society might do with its name, given that John James Audubon well, is. They've, is, they've is had a, debates yeah. for the past few years, and I think at the moment they've decided to keep the name. But they they they've been you know I think birding as a and I'm not a birder, um, but I think as a as a as a hobby as a community they've been having debates like the rest of the united states has over over the, you know the past 10 years about its its own history and and the legacy of white supremacy and how that sort of informed uh birding as a culture and of course there was a the story in uh from central park in new york city uh, a few years ago in which a, a, an african-american birder was accused by somebody of, of doing something and, and although she was a non-birder yeah but but, but he <laughs> but, was a birder right. and so there's this question about about african-americans birding, birding and birding seemed it did they have i just thought that was a fascinating way and I, I heard there was an npr story that had a a guy from the american ornithological society talking about this he said originally i was against it because i really like those names and i grew up with those names but but now we're going to name the birds after the birds right it's birding for you know bird names for birds uh, rather than than human names for birds you know and so they're going to be called things like the Macauan long spur is now going to be called the thick build long spur. So it actually describes what the bird looks like. Anyway, all right, Frank, what's your last round? Well, I just one 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 follow up to that oh. though, David. Uh, bird name for birds it sounds perilously close to America for Americans. <laughs> I'm a little worried about this, but anyway. anyway. <laughs> My last drop is, 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 I want to strike a somber note, unfortunately. Um, uh, Ed Gray, who was a historian at Florida State University in my, in my period, uh, passed away suddenly before Christmas. And Ed was a very fine historian. I, didn't, I, I knew him a little bit and was friendly with him. I didn't know him well, but I, I, I liked him very much. And his scholarship was, was excellent. Um, he edited the he co-edited the Oxford Handbook to the American Revolution, for example. He has a book coming out in the spring uh, on the Mason-Dixon line, mm. which I think will be be of interest to people. And Ed passed away suddenly and unexpectedly before Christmas, so mm. I want to pay tribute to Ed and, and express Sorry my condolences to his friends and family. Yes. And Ed was a historian at Florida State University. Sure. So well, that somber note. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, until next week, Frank. Until yeah. next week. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.